cup of coffee, the Bible, doesn't get much better than that. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations, uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. I hope you're having a fabuloso day. Today we're going to be looking at finishing up 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, as usual, I've had my eyes open to a couple different things, and I have so appreciated Paul's letter to Timothy. So let's get right to it. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today in this. In chapter 6, the first, chap, first uh, paragraph, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. All right, I found an article on slavery. I would like to look at it. Uh, let's see, here we go. Move over here. It's called Slaves and Freemen. Um, it has to do with, uh, it comes from PBS, and they compare slavery in the first century to the slavery that we're more familiar with in our context. And there are some things that, uh, points that were raised up, which I found fascinating. Slavery in ancient Rome differed from its modern forms in that it wasn't based on race. But like modern slavery, it was still abusive and degrading. Slavery had a long history in the ancient world and was practiced in ancient Egypt and Greece as well as Rome. Most slaves during the Roman Empire were foreigners, and unlike modern times, Roman slavery was not based on race. Slaves in Rome might include prisoners of war, sailors captured and sold by pirates, or slaves bought outside Roman territory. In hard times, it was not uncommon for desperate Roman citizens to raise money by selling their children into slavery. All slaves and their families were property of their owners who could sell or rent them out at any time. Their lives were harsh. Slaves were often whipped, branded, or cruelly mistreated. Their owners could also kill them for any reason and would face no punishment. Although Romans accepted slavery as the norm, some people, like the poet and philosopher Seneca, argued that slaves should at least be treated fairly. Slaves worked everywhere, in private households, in mines and factories, on farms. They also worked for city governments, on engineering projects like roads, aqueducts, and buildings. As a result, they merged easily into the population. In fact, slaves looked so similar to Roman citizens that the Senate once considered a plan to make them wear special clothing so that they could be identified at a glance. 
The idea was rejected because the Senate feared that if slaves saw how many of them were working in Rome, they might be tempted to join forces and rebel. Another difference between Roman slavery and its more modern variety was something called manumission, the ability of slaves to be freed. Roman owners freed their slaves in considerable numbers. Some freed them outright, while others allowed them to buy their own freedom. The prospect of possible freedom through manumission encouraged most slaves to be obedient and hardworking. Formal manumission was performed by a magistrate and gave freed men full Roman citizenship. The one exception was that they were not allowed to hold office. However, the law gave any children born to these freedmen, after formal manumission, full rights of citizenship, including the right to hold office. Informal manumission gave fewer rights. Slaves freed informally did not become citizens, and any property or wealth they accumulated reverted to their former owners when they died. So once freed, former slaves could work in the same jobs as plebeians, as craftsmen, midwives, or traders, middle class. Some even became wealthy. However, Rome's rigid society attached importance to social status, and even successful freedmen usually found the stigma of slavery hard to overcome. The degradation lasted well beyond the slavery itself. All right. The one thing that stood out to me most was that, uh, a couple things actually, the American version of slavery, what, what we are most familiar with, was definitely race-based. It was very easy to determine who was a slave, who wasn't. Basically, it was the color of your skin. And even if you were a free black man or woman, the color of your skin identified you as something less than normal. Black men and women, people of color, generally speaking, in America, were treated as less than for centuries, even after slavery was abolished. The color of your skin dictated how you were treated, and it was easy to see in a crowd of people, the black people, Native Americans, people of color. It was easy to separate and focus on them and treat them differently. In Rome, slaves came in all shapes, colors, and sizes. You couldn't just by looking at a person tell if they were to be treated substandard as a slave. Um, I, that was one thing that stood out. The other thing that stood out was that in, um, in opposition to the American form of slavery, uh, slaves in Rome had a path towards freedom. Um, many times it was more like indentured servitude. Uh, you could earn your way out. You could earn your way to freedom. You could buy your own freedom. You, your owners could free you. And if they freed you formally, that gave you citizen statuses, citizenship status, with the exception you couldn't hold public office, but your children could. So there was a lot of diff, uh, very significant differences between slavery in the first century and uh, slavery in our era. And that's not to stand in defense of slavery in the first century because slavery as an institution, period, is egregious. And I'm not supporting slavery in that context in any way, shape, or form. But it might explain why Paul 
wasn't as ardent an abolitionist as many of us would have liked him to be. Um, I, in his instruction to slaves, he tells them to honor Christ by working hard. His instruction to masters is to treat the slaves justly and with fairness. Beyond that, uh, it's a puzzlement to me why Paul didn't just come right out and demand that Christian slaveholders release their slaves. I don't understand it. And I'm not going to defend it. That just seems to be what the uh, what I've been able to pull out of my study so far. All right, so let's get back at it. He talks, he goes on here um, in chapter one. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. All right, Paul has been warning all throughout this first Timothy uh, about heretical teachers, the beginning of what we would call the Gnostic heresy. And uh, Paul warns against heretical teachers in the Ephesian church, some of whom may be, in fact, elders who lead in their house churches. They are characterized by teaching false doctrines, building up endless far-fetched fictitious stories based on obscure genealogical points, being argumentative, um, using talk that was meaningless, wanting to be teachers of the Old Testament law, being conceited, not knowing what they were talking about, teaching ascetic practices, and using their positions of religious leadership for financial gain. <sighs> if anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Now, sound teaching, sound doctrine. This is an important point. Correct teaching in keeping with that of the apostles. That's what he's talking about. The teaching is called sound, not only because it builds up the faith and because it's factually correct, but also because it protects against the corrupting influence of false teachers. Every one of these devotionals lately, I've been reading the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was a creed developed by the church leadership to delineate sound, the basics of sound Christian doctrine from the heretical influences of the teachers of the day. Soundness of doctrine, faith, and speech is a basic concern in all of Paul's pastoral letters. In them, the use of sound occurs eight times. It's found nowhere else in Paul's writings. Paul, in his pastorals, is very concerned about sound teaching. They have, he goes on to say, they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result, emphasis of mine, in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Again, this thing comes up about making money off the gospel. That must have been a pretty big deal back then. Here's a thought that came to mind. There will always be difficult discussions in churches about polity, doctrine, practice, but there's a difference between godly discussion and debate and what Paul mentions here. In my experience, when a difficult discussion results in what Paul describes here, in other words, envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction, it's not of God. Sometimes we need to look past the words that people are saying and examine the behavior of the proponents and opponents. I had a, uh, I, 
experience, I was in a church that experienced a church split years ago. And the people, we'd just gotten a new pastor in, and he wasn't like the old pastor. Uh, we all loved the old pastor. And when this new pastor came in, there was a group of people who started to raise issues with him. And they would speak words that sounded wise and and deep with meaning and and when they're when they were delineating the issues they had with our our new pastor and uh, but there was something about that our new pastor didn't debate them he would not fight back and these people very much were the cause of constant friction with their words. No matter how right they sounded in their arguments, there was constant friction. There was uh, strife, malicious talk, gossip, evil suspicions. I mean, they, they would stand up in church and say wise, wonderful words, but behind the scenes, they were continually manipulating the situation to stir things up because they wanted that pastor kicked out. Their behavior was their calling card. Friction, malicious talk, strife, envy. Whenever you see those attributes, those results of a conversation, that's telling you that one, at least one of these parties is not walking with God. There are ways to have godly disagreements without this. But when you see envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, constant friction between people of corrupt mind, um, that's the telling point, that this is not the way God would have it. And as it turned out, the church did split. These people went off to another church the people that split away from that church started a church and that church ended up disbanding in a year because it just kind of frittered away to nothing. And the people that caused all the problems went to another established church in the area and they did the same thing there. Everywhere these people went, apparently they caused problems. So that is the that was their calling card and that's how you... You sometimes false teachers present teachings that sound so perfect and so right. But when you look at their life and you see envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, etc., ignore it. Move past them. Go past them. But Paul goes on to say, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing to the world. We take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wealth by itself is not a mark of sinfulness. But when wealth becomes the primary goal of one's life, it blinds its pursuers to its dangers. And it blinds its pursuers to the fact that there is greater contentment in godliness and no contentment in the pursuit of wealth. Uh, years and years and years ago, I was part of a multi-level marketing organization called Amway. 
Some of you have heard of it. I did okay in it. I actually made a little bit of money with it. I treated it as a business. And I was in business with several of my friends and we were, uh, it, it was fun. It was, it was wonderful. But we had in our leadership, people who were just really pushing, 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 pushing to make money, 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 money. And for us to sell these kits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they were just, they were money grubbers. And they saw it as a get rich quick thing to benefit themselves. And they didn't see it as a business opportunity that could actually help and elevate people, which is what me and my friends saw it as. We ended up leaving that business because of these other people, because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Business is not bad. Making money is not bad. Multi-level marketing in and of itself is not bad. It's a viable business model. But when it becomes at its core, a get-rich-quick thing, evil things happen, just like Paul is saying here. But you, man of God, he says, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command. Verse 11 and 12. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Keep that command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in an unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Man, there must have been a lot of problem with rich people at Ephesus and in the Ephesian churches. Um, I can imagine a scenario where someone who is very wealthy has a large uh, estate, a large home, large enough that you could host a home church in it. And I think, I could see where because of his money, his wealth, perhaps his status in society, that he would just assume leadership of this home church and start to run things. And that this would become one of the false teachers that Paul was talking about. Uh, but he, Paul keeps coming back to this thing about uh, pursuing wealth, um, pursuing money for money's sake, how evil it is and how it introduces all sorts of evil into everything. Paul urges a stark contrast between Timothy and the false teachers. All right. He tells them by calling Timothy a man of God, Paul evokes Old Testament figures like Moses, Samuel, David, and other servants of God. In short, his foremost disciple, Timothy, is to be everything his antagonists are not. He should flee the vices denounced before and pursue the virtues characteristic of a true follower of Christ, righteousness, Godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 
when he pairs the words flee and pursue, it underscores the intensity with which Timothy is to live the Christian life. Flee. What is he supposed to flee? Let's come up here. Flee from all this. Flee from all what? Flee from the pursuit of wealth. Free envy. Free, flee from envy, strife, malicious talk, uh, controversies, quarrels. Flee this, right? And pursue the virtual characteristics of a true follower of Christ. Followers of Christ today should resolutely distance themselves from evil and strenuously cultivate Christian virtues. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Um, this Again, this departing from the faith it brings up the discussion about can you lose your salvation? Are there people who fall away from they're saved now fall into false teaching, and they fall away from the faith, and then they're not saved. This is an ongoing discussion, and this statement here would give the hint that perhaps people can fall away from the faith. Well, I can I say you can fall away from the faith and not be saved before you fell away. There are many people who come to church, many people who congregate and come together. Uh, the Presbyterians called it the church visible and the church indivisible. The church visible, everybody who shows up on a Sunday. The church invisible, those who are still there. After the non-believers who are associating with the church fall away. Jesus is very clear in John chapter 10, and Paul's clear in his teachings that he believes in what's called the uh, perseverance of the saints, the eternal security, once saved, always saved. Um Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. Uh, Paul says that, for by grace are you saved. And that word saved, we've talked about this before. It's a three-part word. Saved in the past, saved in the present, saved in the future. I was justified. I'm being sanctified. I will be glorified. Our salvation, we're not done being saved. It isn't a one-time event. Salvation, in order to be the true version of salvation, not only has a moment in the past where you bowed your knee to him, but there's a mo but there's a, a lifetime of constant change, a lifetime of being changed, which is proof that you're saved. Pointing at a time in the future when God calls us home where the process is finished. So Paul sees salvation as an unbroken, continual process. So I don't believe that Paul is saying here uh, that somebody's falling away from being a Christian. They might have been called a Christian. They might have been looking like a Christian for a time. But they fell away, which is proof that they were never of us. John says that in one of his epistles, I believe. He says, the fact that they left us proves that they were never of us. And then Paul says, grace be with you all. Now, even though this letter is written to Timothy, the, this plural, you all, or in South we call it y'all, indicates that Paul expects his letter to Timothy be read to the entire Ephesian congregation. I would have liked to have been there to listen to that letter being read. That would have been something. All right. Um, good stuff. I'm 
as usual, honored to be part of uh, what God's doing with his uh, with with Timothy. I'm a, I'm honored to be part of these devotions. Um, God's changing my life with them, and I appreciate everybody who listens and who has given me their input. I am done. Uh, we're going to be coming I be- up tomorrow on Titus, I think, is going to be our next uh, letter in the New Testament. So until tomorrow, I'm Paige. Here's my coffee, and I am out of here. God good or what? Hmm.